You're listening to TIP. The ones that make me more money. <laughs> Which are what? It depends on the market. I, I wouldn't say that single story or, or multiple story make more money, but... In this week's episode, I interviewed Scott Crone, who is converting distressed buildings in the Midwest and repurposing them into self-storage facilities. Scott is a Chicago native who began his real estate career in 1991 as an architect. He is the co-founder of Coda Management Group and holds a Master's of Architecture from the Illinois Institute of Technology. Coda manages a wide range of real estate, including single and multifamily homes, retail, commercial warehouses, self-storage, and multi-use flex athletic spaces, which I think is pretty cool. Their platform of investments is currently in excess of $30 million. I'm a fan myself of self-storage, and I really enjoyed learning from Scott. It was great getting to know him, and I hope you guys all enjoy this episode as much as I did. Now, without further delay, let's get into this week's episode with Scott Crone. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I am your host, Robert Leonard, and with me today, I have Scott Crone. Scott, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate being here. You've done some really cool and adventuresome things outside of your real estate career, which we'll get into in a moment. But first, tell us about the Ultimate Entrepreneur 60 Day Challenge and your involvement with Jesse Itzler who trained with the Navy SEAL and then wrote a book about it, and who I had the honor of meeting and interviewing here on the show. It only lasted about three days, but uh, (laughs) it did go full 60. It was a great experience. It it pushed us both physically as well as in our business. So it it looked at business as well as testing ourselves from a physical point of view. And uh, I think that was the point of what Jesse originally came up with is like, how do I take these concepts that um, a Navy SEAL taught me and how do I apply them to my life and how do I apply them to my business? And so we did it for 60 days and then we went out to California and we did a, a four-hour mutter, a tougher mutter, I believe it was. It was either three or four hours and uh, going through this obstacle course. It was a good test. What was your biggest takeaway from that experience? There's more in the tank. Your perseverance is a lot deeper than what you think it can be. You know, and it's just not from a physical point of view, but it's also mental in terms of business. Throughout the, the 60 days, we had um, different interviews with different entrepreneurs. And the common fact is that we all have problems. We all have challenges, right? You know, no, it's no easy sailing for anyone. And it's funny because I was at my daughter's soccer game and um, I was talking with this fellow dad. We're, we're newer to this team because my daughter was, is older and she joined a, a team that was aging up to her age. And so I don't know the parents as well. And one of them used to work with Jesse at Marquee Jets. And uh, he's like, oh yeah, I know Jesse. And then he told me the story that Jesse tells from you know his perspective and it's just it's interesting to hear the you know the contradictions or you know the different perspectives that come into a situation from two different points of views and stuff. Was that how you got introduced to Jesse or did you find him a different way? I found him through a different way. Uh, it was through a, a community that had him come speak and then uh, they offered up the program and so I, that's I think that's what propelled Jesse to begin his uh, daily programs or his programs that would, now that he's doing on an entrepreneurial basis. Are you based in the Atlanta area? I know he has the Hawks team. I'm not sure if he's from there, if that's where he's now, but is that where you are? 
No, I'm in Chicago. My in-laws used to live in Atlanta, but uh, I'm nowhere near Atlanta. So let's get into some of the, the real estate stuff. Let's talk about your transition from primarily a multifamily investor to focusing more on self-storage. Walk us through how that came about and why you decided to pivot to self-storage. Well, I think, you know, ultimately everyone dreams of owning self-storage facilities, right? I mean, that's, that's the ultimate goal. You know, it's, uh, I think the, the bigger point is that I was in multifamily and with the recession, there was just massive cap compression and it was getting harder and harder to find good deals. And uh, because of the massive recession, you know, the lenders were pushing everyone into multifamily and uh, development was all but dried up because no one wanted to take the risk. And so I had a client that began asking me to find them distressed self-storage and I couldn't find it. And that really intrigued me. Like, here we are in the biggest major recession and I can't find distressed self-storage. What was behind that? And so I began studying it and seeing the resilience of the product. And then uh, we developed one. We flipped it. We did a couple others. And then eventually I sold off my multifamily. And we've been focusing on self-storage since then. Give us a rough timeline on, on when you made that full transition to self-storage. 13, 2013. So a lot has changed. Oh, well, that's when we started. 2013 is when we started. And then uh, 2018 is when we sold our, off our multifamily and went solely after self-storage. Even definitely since 2013, but even since 2018, a lot has changed. And what's the biggest thing for me that I've seen is that self storage has become super popular. Is that a concern for you? It has the popularity of, of this asset class become at all of a concern. There's pluses and minuses to everything, right? So, you know, in the sense that there's more competition, that's a negative. But at the same point in time, because some of the bigger boys are now playing in the space, it's giving legitimacy to lenders. And so there are more lenders willing to do it. When I first started doing it, our lender, who I, I'm a founder of the bank, in terms of how long I've been with that bank, and they literally just said, we don't do self-storage. And it was like, no explanation, no justification, just we don't do self-storage. And um, now you're seeing lots of traditional lenders getting into the space because they see the resilience of it. What's the best way to learn about the industry? What did you use back then? And also, what do you recommend today for maybe books, conferences, Twitter accounts, whatever it might look like if somebody is interested in learning more about self-storage specifically? And maybe they're coming from a different asset class like you. Maybe they're just getting introduced to real estate from the beginning. Yeah. So for me, it was a little bit different because I taught college architecture. I coached real estate. I've been in multifamily. Uh, that was my background. So and then when I started my own company, we we're in single family and then multifamily. So I really understood you know, the residential side of things. And with self-storage, to me, it is a simplistic, more simplistic version of the same box. And I've worked on $14 million homes and I've worked on self-storage lockers that are rent for $25, $50 a month. I've done the spectrum. I've worked on $100 million projects and I've worked on $10 million projects. Within that whole spectrum, to me, it's just we're renting a box, right? It's just a box with less amenities and less features than the $14 million house, right? And so it was easy transition for me because I understood the real estate concepts behind it. Now, what I had to learn was the retail component of the business, which is different. So if, if you understand real estate, then self-storage is a natural, easy progression to move into. If, you're, if you haven't done anything within real estate, then I would recommend a, a book by Paul Moore, Storing Up Profits. He was kind enough to include us in the book. But he looks at different types of self-storage. He looks at class C, class B, class A, development, existing, all those sorts of things. So he looks at the full spectrum of it. And I think it's a very good holistic approach to self-storage if you're looking for a book. If anybody wants to hear, it is a great book and I, I recommend it as well. But if anybody wants to hear Paul himself speak, we had him here on the show. So you could just search for Paul Moore here on the podcast. You can listen to that episode I did with him as well. 
Talk to us a bit more, Scott, about the operations, because with a self-storage business, it's a lot like an operational business in the sense that you have customer facing kind of part of your business that you don't really have as much with multifamily. So talk to us a little bit about that. It's like a combination of a retail business and a an apartments because you do have leases. You do you you are in a leasing mode. You're in lease up mode if you're developing and bringing something online. So th- those things are very similar, but it is much more like a retail business because you have to advertise. You have to market. You you know there's competition in the marketplace. Like we're in a housing shortage right now. So if if you don't have occupancy in you know apartment building. And you got to scratch your head and figure out what you're doing wrong. But usually it's about how much your rent is you're charging, right? But self-storage, there's a lot of competition. So we had to learn about SEOs and pay-per-clicks and how to get our, our search engines up so that people can find us. Because what we're seeing is that the historically, people thought you had to drive by a self-storage facility in order to see it. That's how you get customers. Nowadays, it's all by Google Maps. Like what are people Google is searching? So how fast are you coming up? Where are you searching? But the, the market is three to five miles. So it's not a really heavy, you know, I don't have to advertise throughout like an entire city. I just have to market specific zip codes because we can't do area codes because of people's phone numbers being from all over the country. So we have to market for specific zip codes within an area. And that's what we try to dominate is that three mile radius. Given that you're focused that way, are you buying in areas with a lot of population or are you okay with some of these more tertiary markets? Well, some would argue that a lot of our facilities are in tertiary markets because, I mean, we are in Chicago, but then we have Milwaukee, Toledo, Dayton, Cleveland, Louisville. So those aren't, you know, those aren't the, the top markets. But then we also have two in Michigan, you know, and one we have in Ellsworth, Maine. So we have Jackson, Michigan, and we're building in Bay City, Michigan. And so what we look for is population growth. And we also look for where the supply is well underneath the demand. So we're always looking to make sure that we're going into a market where we have a competitive advantage. What tells you that the supply is less than the demand? Like, what are you looking at to figure that out? Square foot of lockers per capita. And so we have software that we can drop that we can you know, put in a specific address and we can pull all of the facilities within a one, three, five, 10 mile radius. I heard from another self-storage operator that one of the things he likes to do, and this is pretty nitty gritty, but he likes to call self-storage facilities in the area that he's interested in buying to see what their occupancy rate is, see if they'll tell him. And if they're 97, 98, 99, close to 100% full, that tells him that there's probably not enough supply for the amount of demand or that person's just charging, not charging enough, but it can be an indicator of level of demand and supply there. It could be both because, you know, like the, the one we bought in Jackson, Michigan, it was 95% occupied, but it was 30% below market price, which is why we brought it. You know, so he hadn't raised the rents in, in many years. What we're going in there is just going in and increasing um, the performance of the, of the building in terms of automation and then increasing the rents. And that's what we're doing there in that location. We're not expanding. It's one of the few locations where we haven't done any development whatsoever. We just put in an automated gate system. That is a good way. I mean, we always do call the competition. We're checking what the market is, but you can also look online. If you see that it's like, call it 10, 10 rows of buildings, because that's like either a class C or class B type facility, and they only have a couple of units rented or available on their website, that gives you a pretty good indication that they're pretty full. What are you doing to determine market rents? Same thing. We use the same software and we're also calling. We're calling around and we'll role play that we're uh, a buyer and just, you know, like, oh, we're looking for a unit. You know, can, you know what's a 10 by 10? Uh, you know, do you have it on the second floor? On the first floor, you know, I'm not really sure how, whether amenities do you have. And so we just, excuse me, we co-call them. 
Are you doing two-story properties or are you more single-story properties? We have everything from single-story all the way up to eight stories. Which ones do you like better? So the ones that make me more money. <laughs> Which are what? It depends on the market. I, I wouldn't say that single-story or, or multiple-story make more money, but it's not that simple. It's, it's where you are in the marketplace and the rents that you can get. And so we look for the buildings that give us the best opportunity. So the reason why we bought the multiple-story buildings was they were, we could buy them well below replacement cost. We bought a five-story building in Dayton for you know a million dollars, and it's almost 100,000 square feet. We can't build that for that. So that's why we bought it. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. When I think about self-storage, one of the things that, and I don't own any self-storage, but one of the things that I think I would enjoy about it is that it seems like it's relatively easy to manage, maintain compared to a multifamily property, which I do own. And so when I think that, I like that piece about self-storage, but when I start to think about these multi-level properties of self-storage, I'm like, ah, that seems to be a little bit more maintenance, repairs, et cetera, than maybe a single story so I think if I were to get into it, I'd, I'd prefer the single story self-storage. Do you find that there's more maintenance with the multi-level? Well, it's different maintenance. Like we don't have to cut the grass. <laughs> you know, we, don't, you know, we don't have to plow. We don't have to shovel as much, right? In those locations, we don't have those things. We don't have the outdoor elements. You know, we do have elevators. We have fire suppression tests and stuff like that. But other than that, I mean, it's, 
some would argue that it's actually easier because of the fact that um, all of your lockers are indoors, right? So they're, you only have one roof. You don't have 10 roofs, you know, those sorts of things. Yeah, less wear and tear on the units and things like that. Makes sense. How about development? You don't have cars hitting them. (laughs) Yeah, that too. That too. How about the development of a self-storage facility? Is it significantly easier than a multifamily property? Well, I think that has to do a lot with zoning, right? In both cases, and I've I've zoned and rezoned both properties. I've done commercial, I've done multifamily, I've done mixed use, and we've done self-storage. So I've rezoned each of those. And if you don't have to rezone it, then self-storage is by far easier because we can get in for permit a lot faster. There's just less that we have to design, you know, so it's a lot more simplistic. They're just looking at egress and they're looking at, you know, life safety systems, but they're not looking necessarily at all the different things within a unit in terms of number of outlets by a bathroom and all those sorts of things or the structural components, because a lot of times we're dealing with an existing building. So if we just show that we have the structural capacity, then if it's an existing building, it makes it a lot easier. But the entitlements is the biggest challenge of each of them. And the difficulty is finding a space that is zoned for self-storage. That is the bigger criteria within the, if the challenge, if you will. Is it relatively easy to end up getting it zoned or changed to be zoned for self-storage if it's not already? No, I, I'm going to say zoning. And look, I've been to multifamily developments where I've gone to 36 meetings to get something approved, you know, over a two year period of time. But, you know, there's still a stigma within zoning administrators or municipalities for self-storage because they consider it a a dark building, if you will. You know, it's not a a vibrant storefront in terms of like a lot of people traffic going in and out like a a restaurant or a coffee house or this or that. Right. But there's benefits. I mean, you know, you don't have the traffic demand. You don't have the impact on the schools, but you provide a service that people need, not only for residential, for businesses. And a lot of urban planners don't recognize that, especially in this marketplace. You know, we've, we've been told, like in Milwaukee, they changed the definition of storage and self-storage. So our building was originally approved for self-storage, and then they changed the definitions, and they called us up and said, you're no longer approved for self-storage, you have to rezone it. So we were able to do that. And at that meeting, they said they weren't going to approve any other self-storage in Milwaukee because they felt there was too much of it. In Toledo and Dayton, they didn't want our buildings to be zoned. They didn't want our buildings to be self-storage, yet they were zoned for it. And I'm like, well, if you didn't want it, then why did you zone your property for it? And so we're just doing what is zoned for. So how can you restrict us when we're entitled to do this? So they tried doing other things to like withhold other types of approvals in order for us to comply. But we had to show that you know we weren't doing anything that they weren't already planned for. So in that sense, it makes it a little bit harder. What's the difference between self-storage and storage? It was how they defined it. it, was, it they, they recognized it was truly a definition-driven zoning interpretation. So storage would be like Amazon warehouse or something like that, right? Or an in, in industrial warehouse. And self-storage was also a retail customer base. And so a lot of... They were within the city of Milwaukee, which was had a very urban a manufacturing background. There was a lot of warehouses that could have been used for storage. But so then they were all being converted into self-storage. They felt that they wanted to restrict self-storage, but not impact the industry. So that's why they changed it between storage and self-storage. I find this interesting because we hear a lot of the regulation issues with like more flashy, I guess you would say, asset classes like Airbnb, short-term rentals, like regulation, laws, industry, stuff like that is always in the news for, for those. But I don't really see it too, too frequently with, with self-storage. So not that I, I'm glad that you're going through this, but uh, it's interesting to hear that it does happen. 
I will say this, that before we were like the ugly stepchild in the sense that no one wanted it, but then they, but everybody would use it, like 10% of the population uses it, right? And now it's become Airbnbs and, and short-term rentals. And so they're getting a lot more of the publicity while self-storage is being a lot more acceptance. And so that's where we're seeing the trend. We're like, sure, go ahead. You guys can take the negative press. We'll, we'll sit over here quietly and keep doing our thing over here. Yeah, you guys could take all the regulatory scrutiny and uh, we'll, we'll just keep flying under the radar. Yeah, I was just at a, an open house conversation about you know real estate investing in the recession and stuff like that. And um, all the single tenant residents guys, all they wanted to talk about was zoning in terms of they even had an alderman there. And he's like, hey, what are you going to pay to help us get this through and stuff like that? And, it, and of course, it comes down to all the tax money, right? The, the biggest hindrance of that is that the municipalities weren't getting any tax revenue off of it, which is why they didn't want it. Self-storage pays taxes similar to any other type of asset class though, no? Yes, in the sense that you have your property taxes, but then we have a small amount of retail sales. But the bigger problem that they have is it's a retail business, but you're not generating sales tax. And so that's why a lot of municipalities don't like it. They want the sales tax. See, that doesn't even cross so you're my mind. 100,000 square feet and I might have like $300 of sales tax. Yeah, that doesn't even cross my mind. I live in a state with no sales tax, so I don't. I don't even think of. I don't even think of sales tax. We don't have income tax or sales tax. You got to come more to the Midwest for in the East Coast where they love taxing people, right? So the South of me, it's Massachusetts. We call it Massachusetts. You know, lots of taxes yeah. there, but just north of the border in New Hampshire, where I live, we got. I mean, we have high property taxes, but we don't have sales tax, and we have no income tax. You're on that little island up there, then. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> the East Coast. I spoke with my friend's uncle recently who has been building and investing in self-storage for over 30 years. And I was picking his brain and asking if he was me, would he go out and try to find a facility that's selling below replacement costs that's being poorly managed, like you mentioned? Or would he build new or retrofit an existing structure? What are your thoughts? I know you've done both. If you're trying to learn the business, you know it's, it's great to start with an existing business where you don't have to worry about the lease up, right? But this was the argument for my real estate client. He, he couldn't find one that you were describing. And I always told him, I said, the way to make real money in real estate is through development. Anytime that you can change the program, change the valuation of a property, that's where you will make the most amount of money. There's greater risk associated with it, but that's where you can make the most money. So that's why we're a development company. We do development, we do the design, we do the build, we do the management, we do all of it. But that's the big challenge. But you know, we spent two years looking for the one in Jackson, Michigan. And, uh, you know, it's hard to find, but even that one was a, a $3 million acquisition. You were fortunate to have gotten started in real estate at a pretty young age, studying architecture, like you mentioned. And then you ended up working for one of your professors who also happened to be a developer. I'm sure he was a big influence and a mentor for you. Do you have any mentors or coaches today? And is there someone in the self-storage industry that you really remi- admire? I do have other mentors. And you are correct. He was my first mentor. And um, I was fortunate enough to, to get into the industry while in graduate school working for him. And my, my master's thesis was a $100 million project that he was working on in his office. That was his TA. So in the, I had to work for him in his office in the morning and I was doing all the development stuff. And then I'd go to the class and work on all the architecture stuff. And then I'd go home and do homework and do more architecture for him, you know, like from six in the morning till midnight. And I did that for three years and then worked for him for another three years. Um, another mentor I have is Dr. Nino Kubain, who you know immigrated here from Lebanon when he was 16 with a couple hundred dollars in his wallet. And uh, he's just built up a couple different businesses and now owns Lazy Boy and Great Harvest Bread. And he's the president of High Point University and just does a phenomenal job. He's increased that campus by $2 billion and developed over 
a million square feet of campus there. And it's just an incredible transformation. And so I was, you know, I'm fortunate to have been in a mentor relationship with him for a while. But then in, on the self-storage side, I'm part of a mastermind. And, you know, there's other self-storage operators that are in the community. There's like 30 of us. And I admire each and every one of them because they bring something different to the table. I'm one of the few developers in the room, but they all understand something different of the business. And, you know, my business wouldn't be where it is today if it hadn't been for all the people that I've discussed just recently because they all bring something different to the table. That first professor that you worked for, why was he still a professor when he was developing $100 million properties? Was that a separate just development business? He didn't have any ownership in it? Or like, why, why was he still doing both? Oh, he owned the company. Yeah. I mean, because he used the school as a laboratory for his ideas, right? He could have 50, 60 students working on an idea and then implement them. You know, it was a, it was a, and then he would, then he could also choose which students that he wanted to hire to be his employees. It was a brilliant idea. And I liked it as a student because I knew I was working on something legitimate, you know, something real as opposed to like, you know, I always say in architecture, if you don't build it, it's just a, it's a pretty drawing or maybe not a pretty drawing. It's just a drawing. It's got to be good in order to build it. And so I wanted to work on real things. I mean, here I'd done my undergraduate and then I had fun in college, did my undergraduate. But then I recognized when I got to graduate school, like, this is my career. This is what I'm really going for. So I better take this more seriously. And the TA ship was with undergrads. You, you could tell the difference between the undergraduates who still had that I'm in college mentality versus I'm preparing for my career. And that's how I, I approached it. And I love the fact that I was working on real projects. Yeah, I think it's super cool from the student's perspective because I had professors and, and this is not a knock on them. They were brilliant people, but they had never done what they were like teaching. They were either entrepreneur professors who had never started a business or financial, you know, investing professors that had never really made significant investments in the stock markets. And they're teaching these strategies and things like that had always kind of bugged me. So I, I do think it's really cool from a, a student perspective that you were able to experience that. But I just think from his perspective, it's maybe difficult to focus. I'm sure being a professor isn't easy. Developing $100 million properties isn't easy. So kind of doing both at the same time, I can imagine it was probably a lot on his plate. It is. But I mean, to go back to your point, and he got a lot of criticism from the other faculty about not allowing students to explore the creative side of architecture. What I really appreciate about Dr. Nito Cobain is that when he took over High Point, he treated the school as a business. And you know, he turned down the job originally because he said, you're not going to let me run it like a business. And they're like, no, we need you. We're, we're not doing well. We need to do better. And so he brought... He has merged academic with business in a way that I've never seen at any other campus. So he has like Steve Wozniak there. He has Mark Randolph. He brings in all these different entrepreneurs and they, and they teach classes and they work with students. And he really balances both real life business with the ability to pursue things academically. And that's what makes High Point unique to me. And that's why I really like it is the fact that you, can, you don't have to separate them. And I, you know, when I was teaching in the academic world, it was like the academic purity of something. I'm like, well, if you're not preparing kids to actually do what they're going to be needing to do, then it's like you're saying, it's all in the headspace. You need some real life application in there as well. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. 
While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. For those listening that are a little bit earlier on in their real estate journey, how should they think about mentorship? Is it a necessity? This is always a huge debate, right? I mean, if you, if you go into bigger pockets, I think if you just type in this one topic, you can create a landslide of, of arguments with people, you know, like you shouldn't have to pay for anything and this and that. I mean, I've paid for it. I mean, granted, you know, when I took my job, you know, when I was a TA, I was paying to go to school to get the education. I was, you know, took a job with less salary because I knew what I was going to learn. And then I paid other people. I paid for education. I believe in paying for things because I believe that you get what, what you pay for. Now, I'm not saying just pay indiscriminately, but I'm saying make sure that what you're, what you're signing up for is in alignment with what you're getting. Because when I did teach, the 80-20 rule applied. You know, we'd ask all of our students, we would have like 25 students every semester, and we'd ask them what they all wanted to get out of the class. And most of the time, like 90% of the people would say it A. And the people who said, like, I really want to learn about something within this field, like, you know, I want to learn about this sort of design or how to do this. Those were the students that got the A's. And every student who said they wanted to get an A didn't put in the work effort to get the A. And we would say, like, look, we don't give A's. We're going to tell you exactly how to earn them. And if you follow, you know, if you meet those criteria, you will get an A. It's as simple as that. You know, it's like, it's not subjective. It's, you know, we're going to outline the different things that you need to do to get an A. And the students who didn't want to put in that time and effort are the ones who didn't get the A's. But that was 80% of the class. But they would all say they wanted it. I hear people frequently say that they they can't get started until they have a mentor or they don't know how to move forward because they don't have a mentor. 
Do you think somebody should still just kind of power through, find a way to keep going or get started, even if they can't find a mentor and then maybe just find one along the way? Or should they wait, find a mentor first and then get started? It's interesting. You, we began this whole conversation talking about Jesse Itzler, right? And we talked about the, the mental hurdles and stuff like that. When I would coach real estate, I would always ask people, what do you want to accomplish? And they're like, well, I'm hoping to do this. I'm like, why are you hoping and not doing? The first thing we have to do is change your mentality. So if someone's saying like, I'm trying to get into real estate, well, you need to change that mindset from I'm trying to I am in real estate, right? That's the first step. So if you keep telling people that you're trying, then no one's going to take you seriously. It's not that hard to get into real estate or any other profession because there's lots of resources out there. The, the biggest thing I would say to people is figure out what you want to do. You know, if you want to get into self-storage, then learn about self-storage. And, and you know, if you want to do that, if you want to get into brokering or, or flipping or fixing, there's plenty of avenues. There's plenty of things out there in order to train you to teach you how to do those sorts of things. And so it, it's, it's not that hard. What's hard is making sure that you do it right. You know, and making sure that you have the systems in place to make sure that you're doing things right. That's the hard part. Getting involved in it is not that hard. If you've been involved in real estate as long as you have, there are going to be successes, but also failures along the way. What has been the biggest setback that you've experienced? How did you handle it? And what did you learn from it? I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, there's the, the biggest setback is when it's, I'm going to say it's personnel, right? It's you align yourself with someone who doesn't have the same goals and objectives as you do. And then that causes problems. You know, it, ultimately, you're gonna, there's going to be something that comes down the road. It's a challenge. And if you're not on the, the same alignment, then you're going to be going in different directions. That's where I've... The thing that I learned from my first mentor is how to do the business. The second thing I learned from Nito was how to replicate or build my business. You know, when I, before I met him, I was just working in a small area of Chicago. Now we're from Milwaukee all the way to Maine and down to Louisville in Michigan. And so I wouldn't have been able to do that if I hadn't thought like how to expand my business. And so for me, the biggest challenge is finding the right people that can come alongside that want to do that as well. And if we're not in alignment, you know, then, then they're going to go in different directions. How do you test if you're in alignment? How do you make sure you... Now that you've learned that, what are you doing to make sure that you are going forward? Well, one thing that we do is we... There's a, a book called The Road Back to You by Ian Morgan Crone. And and you know, I got to go back to Paul Moore and try to get more of these royalties for all these endorsements I'm giving him. You know, it's like you know, you're like, oh, go talk to Paul Moore over here. I'm like, I got to renegotiate my my uh, charges with him. There's zero right now, by the way. In Ian Morgan Crone, I there's no relationship, so I'm not getting any endorsement fees from him. Just like with Paul Moore, but it's it's a book on the enneagram, and the enneagram is an, an understanding of personalities. But for me, the first step is whenever someone comes into the company, we have them go through that book. So that we can understand their personalities and they can understand ours so that we can try to avoid conflict based upon just how we communicate. You know, if I understand how that person, where they're coming from, I can make sure that my communication doesn't come across as a way of challenging for them or difficult for them as opposed to helpful for them. You know, that's the biggest thing is making sure we understand one another, how we communicate. And then the other is getting to know people and taking the time to see what they really want to do and accomplish. And we'll say this, it's easy to get into real estate. But to be an entrepreneur is not made up for everybody. You, know, you have to be willing to hear no. And if you're not used to hearing no, then it's going to be hard for you. you know, you're going to hear a lot more no's than you hear yeses. Real estate can be quite a grind at times, and it's definitely not all sunshine and rainbows. How do you reignite yourself and get out of slumps when your passion for real estate might be waning? Maybe you're going through some tough times. How do you reignite that passion? 
You can't look short term. I also look long term. And, you know, for me, faith plays a major component of that. And I'm just recognizing, like, ultimately, where am I going long term? You know, what, what's where is this happening? And if there's a plan, if there's a, if I have an overall goal and I have a bigger picture, then it propels me beyond the little bumps and trials that you face throughout your life. And when, when you're in them, they don't seem little. But, you know, in the big grand scheme of things, when you look back, you're like, wow, that wasn't so bad. Usually every time I've, you know, that's one of the points that Jesse was trying to make. Every time you, tr- you accomplish something, you look back and you're like, man, it wasn't really that tough. There's like these mental hurdles that you put in front of yourself that make these hurdles bigger. How do you focus? How do you fight off shiny object syndrome? It's going back to that major goal, right? I mean, people call us up and say, hey, you want to do this? And we're like, no, our goal is 10 facilities in five years. You know, we have this goal. You know, it's a long-term goal. And people are like, what's your goal for the new year? I'm like, it's part of my five-year goal. You know, it's part of my 10-year goal. That's how I fight off the shiny objects is having that longer-term vision. So you think of every opportunity, time you get asked for something, anything like that, you relate it back to that main goal you have. And if it doesn't kind of get you there or apply to that or relate to that, you say no. And if it does, you you maybe consider it? Yeah, absolutely. If I think it will... enhance or contribute to our overall goal, then I'll do it. If not, then I won't do it. I know you played soccer and then football in college at Kenyon. There are many athletes that have transitioned to real estate after their careers were over. Roger Staubach and and Emmett Smith come to mind. What is it about sports, do you think, that often leads to success later in life? I will say that that's the first and probably the only time in my life that I'll be in the same sentence as Roger Staubach and Emmett Smith. (laughs) Thank you very much for that comparison. I think it will end at that point in time. But I think that you learn to overcome adversity. Every athlete gets hit back. You know, even those guys in the Hall of Fame, they've had setbacks, right? They all get to a point in their career where they can't perform like they were anymore. And so they have to learn how to adapt. They learn how to adjust. They learn how to compete differently. I've been fortunate enough to meet Roger Staubach and he talked a lot about that. You know, he, his career was not, you know, Hall of Fame right from the beginning. I mean, he overcame a lot in order to get there. If you look at it today, in today's world, he probably wouldn't even be drafted because he doesn't meet the physical criteria, right? It's just how much the sport has evolved and changed. And so that's the biggest thing. And I mean, he's been probably more successful in the business world than he ever was on, on the athletic world, but people don't realize that. What would you tell your son if he came to you and said, Dad, I want to get started in the business? And we're going to assume that he didn't have the good fortune of already having you in the business. What would you tell him if he wanted to pursue his first real estate or even specifically self-storage deal? My wife works with family offices. And and I came from family business on both sides of my family, my mom's side and my dad's side. And the thing that the commonality is that I assumed that I was going to go into the family business. And then my parents showed up at graduate before my graduation at Parents Weekend. They said, oh, by the way, you're not going in the family business. We're selling it. But if I had had that opportunity, I think the better thing would have been for me to do is go work for somebody else to see how other people run businesses and then bring that experience back into the family business. Right now, none of my kids want to go into real estate. They all want to... Pers- my, my daughter just pursuing her nurse practitioners. So she's just finishing that up this year. She'll be a have that degree next year. And my son wants to go into international commerce and strategic planning. And my daughter wants to go in logistics. I'm just encouraging them to go do those things rather than feel that they have to be going into the family business. You know, when they were younger, I worked from home. So they probably saw things that may impact them or, you know, want them not to go into this business. But again, what we always try to do is develop the skill set that they like within, you know, our parenting style is like teaching them how to win how to compete, but more importantly, also how to lose and recover and then grow and build. 
in each of those things, that's what we've really taught our kids because again, it's that those are the life lessons that are going to apply to business. You know, whatever they want to go into. My my daughter might become a pilot. You know, she loves flying right now. And she's also going into strategic um, logistics, you know, so who knows, like both industries are great for women right now. We're just encouraging our kids to pursue what they want to do because they have to have a passion behind it. If you don't have a passion behind what you're doing, then it's boring, right? It's no fun. Knowing what you know today, what could you have known when you were just getting started that would have allowed you to scale faster, maybe be more profitable along the way and avoid some of the mistakes that you've made? Oh, jeez. I think patience. <laughs> I started my own company at 28. I don't know if I was stupid or impatient. Probably both, right? You know, I thought I knew everything at 28, and you know, I, I certainly didn't know that. But um, you know, I think patience is the biggest thing. Maybe I can implement that now. As we wrap up the show, what's the biggest takeaway you'd like our listeners to walk away with from this interview? And where can people go to connect with you? Well, I think the biggest thing is like, if you were to want to pursue something, like really define what it is what you want to do and make sure that it excites you, right? So that you have a passion about it. I mean, people say like, how do you have a passion about self-storage? It's not self-storage. It's real estate, right? It's a, it's a component within real estate that I'm focusing on. If that's what you want to get passionate about, great. If you, we, we'll, we'll love to help you on that process. And as a gift to your listeners, if they reference this show, we'll give them two things. We'll give them one, a feasibility study that we did on our, one of our sites in Dayton. And it's, it's like a 175-page report. And it talks about the self-storage industry, but also about why we went into that site, why we went into that location. The second thing is we will give a self-storage deal analyzer. So we will give tools to help you guys get on the, uh, on the path or on the route to determine whether or not self-storage is right for you. And if you find something that you wanted to evaluate, call us up. Or emails, and we'll spend an hour with you. We'll go through it and see if that if it's right. And you know, the the industry is so small that we're not going to try to steal a deal. That's not our focus. That's not our, our operations. And we, if you want us to sign a non disclosure, we're happy to do that. But we've never stolen a deal from anybody on that. That's not our business model. But we'll be happy to talk about it with you and then say something we would do or something that we wouldn't do. And you know, there's there's plenty of times where we've said both, right? You know, like, hey, you're going to do it. Great. This looks like a great opportunity or I wouldn't touch this with a 10-foot pole. And sometimes no can be the best thing you ever hear. But they can reach us at info at coda, C-O-D-A-M-G.com. That's info at codamg.com. And we'd be happy to reach out. I'll put Scott's resources that he just mentioned, email, website in the show notes below for anybody that's interested in checking that out. I'll put my link, a link to my episode with Jesse Itzler, Paul Moore. I'll put Paul's book. I'll put everything related to this episode that we talked about in the show notes below for anybody that's interested in checking those out. Scott, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.